Hello and welcome to our third session together. Let me pray as we begin. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would open our eyes, that we might see more of the wonder of the word that you have given to us, and that you would help us to understand more of how it works in our lives and what it is for us, both as individuals and as the church. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have been puzzled why in the last session, when we thought about the inspiration of Scripture, we didn't turn to 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, which is the most famous verse on the inspiration of Scripture. All Scripture is breathed out by God, or as some translations have it, inspired by God. Scripture in the context would refer primarily to the Old Testament, but remember that in 2 Peter 3.16, there's a handy 3.16 in common there between those two verses, Peter talks about the letters of Paul as being Scripture. So already there is an expanding definition of Scripture in view, expanding to include the New Testament. But I need to tell you, as we do turn to this verse now, and I've kept it for treatment separately in this session to pay a bit more attention to it, that I don't believe in the inspiration of the Bible. The Bible is not inspired. But I say that because the idea that the Bible is inspired is too weak an idea. The claim is too small a claim. You see, if I say to you, oh, I was feeling particularly inspired when I wrote that poem the other day, not that I write many poems, I admit, but if I were to say that to you, I would be claiming some sort of, I don't know, some heightened insight or a particular sense of what I was doing or something vague like that. But when we read about scripture being inspired, it means far more than that. It means that it is, as the ESV has it, breathed out by God. So we would be better to speak not of inspiration, but of expiration, the expiration, the breathing out of scripture. At least we would be better to do that if it didn't make it sound as if Scripture has perhaps an expiration date, an expiration date, a date at which it will go out of date. And of course we wouldn't want to imply that, so that's perhaps why the language of the expiration of Scripture has not caught on. But that is nonetheless what it teaches about itself, that it is breathed out by God, rather than that it is, in some vague sense, inspired by God. And when we think about uh, God's word and God's breath, uh, they go together, don't you? So you can do an experiment. You can take your hand and you can put your hand in front of your face as you speak, as I am now, and you can feel, you can always feel, your breath coming out. In fact, try speaking without breathing and you'll discover you can't. So the idea of scripture being breathed out fits with it being God's spoken word. So Psalm 33, verse 6, for example, says, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth all their host. So word and breath go together. Now, at that point, it's helpful then in thinking about the expiration, the breathing out of the word of God, to think about uh, the nature of God's breath. Because God's breath, as we remember from Genesis 2.17, is what gives life to man. It is his life-giving breath. And then we think in the context of uh, what happens when he speaks in Genesis, and we remember that his word, which he breathes out, has inherent power. It is an efficacious word. It accomplishes 
the purpose for which he speaks it. Uh, God said, and there was, we read repeatedly. That's why Isaiah says in chapter 55 uh, that God's word will not return to him empty. God's word, his breath, is life-giving and it is efficacious. And we're also reminded there that it's a creative word, aren't we? That it is, it's, a, it's a word that brings things into being. But we'd want to expand on that and say that his word, as we have it in the scriptures, is in fact not just a creative word, but a recreative word. Because the word that he speaks to us is not part of his work of creation. It's part of his work of redemption, of recreating the, wor- the world. So the word is powerful, is efficacious in the recreation of the world in God's redeeming work. So the word of God, spoken by the risen Lord Jesus Christ, brings about the new creation. And all of that tells us that that the words of the Bible, as we saw last time, are indeed written by human authors, but they are also breathed out by God. So that we believe in the dual authorship of scripture. A human author, maybe one, more than one human author in the case of some texts which were perhaps put together or edited by somebody, and a divine author. Both are true, but of course there's always going to be a priority about the divine author. So it's, it's a dual authorship, but it's an asymmetrical authorship in which God, the divine author, is the one who controls what is written. And that thought helps us with the next question I want to look at, which is whether scripture is not just inspired or expired, but also inerrant, without any kind of error in it. The vocabulary is interesting here because it used to be the case that if you said that scripture is infallible, that amounted to saying that scripture is inerrant without error. But now some people would try to say that scripture is infallible but is not inerrant. And by that they mean that it's, it's reliable in certain carefully defined senses. Maybe it teaches you what you need to be saved infallibly. But it isn't inerrant when it comes, for example, to matters of history. And so, according to some people's definitions nowadays, there's a distinction between an infallibility of a certain sort and a total inerrancy. But it does seem clear from the fact that scripture is expired by God, that it must also therefore be inerrant. Now, let me just be a bit more specific about what that does and doesn't imply. It doesn't imply that every little phrase of scripture is true. For example, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes the sentence, Jesus be cursed. Um, But he's not saying that Jesus is cursed in the sense in which the people he's quoting are saying that. Or you think that there are other bits of scripture which you couldn't really say, are they inerrant or not? For example, um, in the Song of Songs 6 verse 1, the question, where has your beloved gone? Uh, A question is not really an inerrant thing, is it? So there are some statements of scripture which are not intended to be historical statements. They might be expressions of emotion or something like that. Um, Or they might even be quotations of wrong opinions, in which case we can't say, well, are they inerrant? The, The category doesn't really apply. But where scripture speaks on matters of fact, it speaks without error. Now, why does that follow from expiration or inspiration? Think of it like this. If scripture has been breathed out by God, 
down to the tiny details, remember the jots and tittles that we talked about last time? Well then, what do we know about God? We know that God is the God of truth who does not lie. Numbers 23, verse 19, for example. And if God breathes the whole of Scripture, and the God who breathes the whole of Scripture is a God who does not lie, then Scripture cannot contain untruths as its assertions. It can quote somebody else saying something untrue, but it can't assert anything untrue. And this fits with the way that the Old Testament speaks about God's word, doesn't it? Psalm 12, verse 6, for example, the words of the Lord are pure words. Psalm 18, verse 30, the word of the Lord proves true. So scripture teaches by implication of its expiration, and to some extent by plain statements like that from the Psalms, that it is all true and therefore inerrant. Now, I need to say this is not a new doctrine. People have tried to argue that the idea of Scripture being without error in matters of history is a recent idea, maybe a 19th century idea or something like that, or maybe a a 17th century idea that emerged after the Reformation among the group known as the Reformed Scholastics, the great giants of the 17th century, a lot of overlap with the Puritans. And they'd say they were the ones who invented this idea of inerrancy. But that is plainly not the case when you go back into church history and into the early writings. So let me give you an example of Augustine. Uh, This is something he talks about a lot in a book he wrote called The Harmony of the Gospels, where he seeks to demonstrate the agreement of the Gospels with each other. Or in letter 82. So here's, here's a passage where he says this kind of thing. I have learned to yield this respect and honour only to the canonical books of Scripture. Of these alone do I most firmly believe that the authors were completely free from error. And if in these writings I am perplexed by anything which appears to me opposed to truth, I do not hesitate to suppose that either the manuscript is faulty, so the manuscript he's looking at has been copied mistakenly from the original, or the translator has not caught the meaning of what was said, or I myself have failed to understand it. You see what Augustine's doing there. Whenever he thinks there might be an error in the text of Scripture, the one place he doesn't actually find the error is in the original text of Scripture itself. He will find it either in the copying, or in his own misunderstanding, or in the translation. Fast forward to the 16th century, and a great apologist for the Elizabethan Church of England, William Whittaker, wrote this. We cannot but wholly disapprove the opinion of those who think that the sacred writers have, in some places, fallen into mistakes. And in fact, the idea of the inerrancy of Scripture remained the official teaching, even of the Roman Catholic Church, until the 1960s. So as late as 1943, a papal encyclical uh, said this, For as the substantial word of God became like to men in all things except sin, that's God the Son becoming man, but not sinning, so the words of God expressed in human language are made like to human speech in every respect except error. And at the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s, Rome backed away from that. And since that council, uh, there's been a a great um, upsurge in liberal biblical scholarship among Roman Catholic writers who previously had held a very conservative view of the inerrancy of Scripture. So those examples just demonstrate to show that this is not a 
uh, a modern Protestant invention. It is a teaching that goes back all the way to the early church because it's an implication of what scripture says about itself. Again, though, let me just be clear on what this does and doesn't imply. And in a wonderful book on scripture by Timothy Ward, Words of Life, uh, he explains what you shouldn't infer from this. And this is a really helpful paragraph. Belief in biblical inerrancy naturally takes account of a number of features of scripture that flow from the fact that it is written in ordinary human language, using the everyday features of ordinary language. These include the use of round numbers and colloquial approximations, loose and free quotations, especially of the Old Testament and the New, some unusual and strictly speaking wrong grammatical forms, and figures of speech such as metaphor, parable, hyperbole, and so on. None of these features counts against the claim that scripture does not err in everything it affirms. So scripture is without error. We need to understand that carefully. It speaks in human terms. It talks about the sun rising, for example, or as we know, the sun does not literally rise. Uh, but it is without error because it has been breathed out by God. And I want to draw your attention now to another aspect of the nature of scripture. It's expired, it's breathed out by God, it's without error. I want to suggest something that you may be less familiar with, which is the idea that scripture is like God's covenant treaty with the church. His covenant treaty. Now what's a covenant? In the most basic sense, a covenant is a promise from one party to another uh, concerning some future good or ill some blessing or curse. And we know that scripture is full of different covenants. In fact, the book of Deuteronomy is shaped like an ancient covenant treaty. So covenants were massive in the ancient Near East, and a conquering power would impose a covenant on a subdued power, and it would, they would have fairly standard patterns about the different elements in those treaties. And we see this reflected in the book of Deuteronomy across the whole book. So it begins with a preamble about who God is. So who is the imposing party? Then there's a historical prologue about what he's done in his dealings with his people. Then there are stipulations. What does he require of them? Then there are curses and blessings specified for if they obey or disobey, disobey or obey. And then at the end you get uh, what are normally known as succession arrangements, which is so here's how our relationship is going to continue, and this is how this covenant treaty is going to continue among you. So that's the standard pattern for an ancient Near Eastern treaty that we see reflected in Deuteronomy, or at least it's one of the standard patterns for ancient Near Eastern treaties. Now the Bible as a whole is not laid out in those parts in sequence, but it functions as God's covenant treaty with his people, the church. So covenant is a very prominent theme in scripture, that's obvious from the use of the word all over the Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, although to some extent it's true that kingdom vocabulary becomes more prominent than covenant vocabulary in the New Testament, we mustn't forget that the Lord Jesus Christ, at the Last Supper, on the eve of his death, so at the absolute centre of what he's come to do, speaks about the new covenant in his blood. So his, his central act is defined in covenantal terms. And interestingly, in Luke 22, verse 29, he says that the Father has covenanted a kingdom to him, and so he covenants a kingdom to his disciples. Sometimes that word is translated in English Bibles as appointed, but it's the verb for covenanting in the Greek. And so 
right again at the, at the heart of things in, in the Last Supper, Jesus talks about having received his kingdom by covenant and giving a kingdom by covenant. So covenant there is a category that contains kingdom within it. So covenant is central all through scripture, Old and New Testaments. And the scriptures themselves function as God's covenant treaty with the church. This is the text which mediates his relationship with his people, which describes well, all those different things, who he is, what he has done for his people, what he requires of us, the great blessings that await us, the curses that await those who disobey. And then it itself uh, describes his ongoing relationship with the church. So the Bible is God's covenant treaty with his people. It is through the scriptures that the Spirit mediates our relationship with God. Now this is very helpful, I think, for relating to the scriptures correctly. Let me ask you a question. What do you think the difference is between the Bible and an inspired, inerrant encyclopedia of birds? Were there such a thing as an inspired, inerrant encyclopedia of birds? What would the difference be between that and the Bible? And I hope we see there'd be massive differences. You could have a... God could breathe out an encyclopedia of birds with no errors in it. And yet it would be nothing like the Bible because it's doing a totally different thing. And we would relate to it totally differently. In fact, we could totally ignore it and it wouldn't matter if we weren't particularly interested in birds, but the scriptures are at the centre of our life and of our walk with God. And so it's really important that we remember that and that we don't treat them as if they are just an encyclopedia of God, you know, a book that we could go to to, to look up God in. I, I want to know this about God, let me find where's the right page, what does it, what does it say about this? We can do that, we can study things about God in the scriptures, but not just as an end in itself. There's a great risk for those of us who believe in the authority and centrality of Scripture in our lives that we, we almost over-objectify it. We make it into a, an object which we can then master. Uh, few things have scared me over the years more than hearing young theological students coming into uh, theological training and in their first year arriving and talking about what they've done before and saying how they really felt that they got Galatians under their belt. Or they really felt they'd mastered Romans. seems to me that if you say that, you've really not grasped the nature of the scriptures. You've treated the scriptures as a laboratory specimen, which you control and master. And if you think of the scriptures that way, you end up studying them in a particular way, and then preaching them in a particular way. So that the study of scripture becomes an end in itself, rather than for another end. And that approach to scripture can be very attractive to the academically minded. Those of us who love studying texts can come to love studying the Bible like that. And that can even lead someone to thinking they're called into ministry, because they love studying the text as a text and explaining the text as a text. Never mind the question of whether they love God's people or not. And never mind the question of whether they've understood what this text is for, which is that it is not an end in itself. 
So maybe we shouldn't talk about studying the Bible, but about the Bible studying us. And the idea of God's covenant treaty in the scriptures helps us here. Because think about how a covenant treaty works. It controls, regulates, is the basis for a relationship between two parties. And it's a living document. A covenant is a standing promise, therefore an always present promise. It's not the case that scripture was breathed out then and then stops being breathed out. No, no, no. Scripture was breathed out then, but God still breathes it out now, not in the sense of the the process of it being written down. That's obviously done a couple of thousand years ago, but in the sense of him meaning it now and speaking it to us now as his living word. Well, that, that is what a covenant treaty is. So, for example, in the ancient Near East, if the messenger of the Assyrian king turns up at the gates of your city, he doesn't say, the king of Assyria once breathed out this treaty for you. He says, the king of Assyria says to you now these words, even though they were written down a while ago. So we are to have, uh, as Christians, a thoroughly conservative view of the scriptures, but not an arid conservative view of the scriptures, which makes them a dead text. We are to grasp that this is God's living word, his lively oracles to the church. One of the great early writers on the doctrine of scripture in the 16th century, Robert Rollock, puts it like this. This we say also concerning the sacred scripture, that it is most effectual, most lively and most vocal, sounding to every man an answer of all things necessary unto salvation. See what he's saying there? It's the living word of God. And Helen Bavinck, puts this rather beautifully as well. He says, Scripture is the ongoing rapport between heaven and earth, between Christ and his church, between God and his children. It does not just tie us to the past. It binds us to the living Lord in the heavens. It is the living voice of God the letter of the omnipotent God to his creature. And you can see what he means there, can't you, with this idea of scripture as a letter. If you received a letter from your beloved, it feels as if it's being spoken to you there and then as you read it. It doesn't just tie you to the past, the moment in which it was written, but it's a standing utterance, a speaking voice. Now, this fits perfectly well, doesn't it, with the way that the writer to the Hebrews uses Psalm 95. Most uh, strikingly, uh, when he introduces the quotation from Psalm 95 in Hebrews 3, verse 7, he puts it like this. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and then he quotes, today, if you hear his voice, Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. So there are two striking things there. First of all, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, the Holy Spirit is speaking this word today, not just as the Holy Spirit said when Psalm 95 was first written, but then also the words of the psalm itself, quoted by the writer to the Hebrews as a living utterance, today if you hear his voice. So that this is a, a, a command 
about God speaking here and now today. Christ speaks his word here and now. This is his living covenant with us. He speaks his promises to us now. They have present binding power. So we need to grasp two things here. First of all, the the expiration of the scripture back then when it was written. But secondly also, the way in which God is still uttering it today. And then, of course, we need a third thing, which is that our, the eyes of our hearts need to be opened to it. We need then the Spirit to illuminate us internally. We need all of these elements in place of the, the objective out there reality of the text, yes, but not stopping there. It is a reality out there that was breathed back then, but it's the living voice now, and then we need the, the living work of the Spirit in us to enable us to respond to it. My suspicion is that among conservative Christians, our weakness is on this living voice emphasis, that we're, 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 we too much make it a thing from the past, that we study as an object from the past. And we, that we in a sense, our carefulness about doing that um, can become uh, a distraction from hearing God speak in it. Now, it shouldn't, and I'm not saying that we should therefore be less careful, absolutely not. We need to be absolutely diligent in studying the scriptures and in all the details of the scriptures. But we mustn't ever stop there. And I think that's probably the conservative tendency. You see it reflected when somebody's coming to preach and the, the, the service leader says, so-and-so will now come and explain the Bible to us. And I know lots of other people have said what I'm saying here. They said we should stop talking about so-and-so coming to explain the Bible. He's coming to preach the word of God, the living word of God to us. But still you hear it, pretty widespread. So-and-so is going to come and explain the passage to us. I have to confess when I hear that, my heart sinks. I think if I wanted the passage explained, I could sit at home and read a commentary. I want the passage preached as the living voice of God to us. And that is what we desperately need as his hungry, weak people who need to hear his life-giving, redemptive voice speaking his covenant promises to us week by week, constantly. We need that. So let's think about what scripture is and let's apply that in our own lives, that understanding of it as his living utterance to us. This explains why hearing the word of God is such a good thing, doesn't it? Why in Psalm 1 we find the man who delights in the law of the Lord and becomes like a tree planted by water because it's a life-giving word. It's a delightful thing to be in the scriptures because of their purpose in the hands of our loving Heavenly Father. So think through what that means for your disposition to the Bible. As you come to read it on your own in the morning, what is your approach to the scriptures in doing that? Think through what that means as you come to hear the word preached in church. What what are you coming to do? To learn more about the Bible? Absolutely not, if by that you mean that that's an end in itself. You come to learn more about the Bible, yes, to get to know your living Lord better. That's the purpose of coming to hear the scriptures preached. And that means we're coming to hear the the voice of God speaking to us as we gather. That should really affect 
the spirit in which we come. We shouldn't be, if we have children, dragging them unwilling and grumpy to church because it's just what we do because we have to do it because we're Christians. What a fantastic way to kill the little seed that is in them. No, no, no. We need to be coming with a sense as a family, if we come with children, that this is an exciting high point of our week because we're gathering to hear the living voice of the living God addressing us. It should affect the whole ethos of our corporate worship. If this is what's happening when God's word is preached, we should be full of joy indeed to hear the the voice of our Father, but also reverence and awe. You know, people come up with rules about what you should and shouldn't do in church, and that's one way of approaching it. But it might just be better to say, if what is happening here is that God is speaking to us, how then should we conduct ourselves? That, I think, would prevent us doing certain things and behaving in certain ways if we understood that that is what is happening. But we must come expecting that because God is speaking to us as our Heavenly Father, his word, his self-binding promise, he comes to do us good as we gather to hear him. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that your word is. We thank you that it isn't just an encyclopedia of God. We thank you that you reveal in it many, many facts about yourself indeed, but that you reveal them that we might know you better as our Heavenly Father. We thank you that it is a word which speaks wonderful promises to us. And we thank you that they're not dead artefacts from the past, but that they come to us from your lips today as your living word. And we pray, therefore, that in all of our different approaches to the scriptures, whether that be on our own or in a home group or in coming to church together, that we would come to it as what it is, understanding the purposes for which you use it, and therefore with a right heart and a right disposition. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.